welcome to episode 392 of the Haskin Cast podcast. I'm your host, Scott Haskin, and I have a special guest with me. But you know what? Before I bring it on, bring it on, bring him on. <laughs> we're off to a great start here. This is only the third podcast I've done in the last 24 hours. Uh, I want to I want to share something with you guys. It, those of you who listened to my review of the soundtrack from the movie Heat, if you remember the music that they played during the uh, the main bank heist around the middle of the movie that I, I really dug. Um, interestingly, that same music was licensed for a fight between Steven Seagal and DMX in the movie Exit Wounds. And you can hear it a little bit better because there's not a lot of gunfire at that point to uh, drown it out. So that's something a little fun. Uh, but on to our guest. He is one of the masters of the Deep Dive Podcast Network with, I don't know even how many, what, three podcasts he's got now. And uh, he guests on all the shows because he's awesome and a great uh, guy, you know, just to take over your show and moderate and keep things smooth. He is the one, the only, the massive Kevin Brown. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing very, very well, Scott. Thank you so much for having me on. I feel, I feel like a, this is a privilege. 392 episodes. You're yeah, a monster. it's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> well, this is uh, this is year seven. Uh, my first year was pretty short because I started the show in October, and uh, you know, then just kept going. It took a, a couple of hiatuses while I was doing projects, but for the last year or so, uh, been haven't missed a week, which has been great. Had some bonus episodes uh, just this past Saturday. Uh, Jerry Sitkov was on from uh, Doors of Change. That was great to talk to him again. Uh, and then, you know, getting the, the chance to have great guests like you on where we talk about some random album. Well, let's um, let's let's wait for that judgment until, until the end. I think we should just reserve judgments about how great it is until the end. <laughs> well, you know, Kevin, you and I have podcasted many times before. I was a guest on your Tom Petty project. This is the first time you're coming on this show, but you have uh, a bunch of cool podcasts. Why don't you give everybody a, a little overview? Yeah, the Tom Petty project is my that's my sort of soul loan project, and that was the, kind of the first one that I really started. Um, get into the the music side of things and on the deep dive podcast network and so that's just going through the entire catalog one song at a time album by album and then i have guests on and you graciously came on and were one of my guinea was my guinea pig for a mm -hmm. sort of a new format called the petty eights that i wanted to do um i also do the seaside pod review with my friend randy woods that's going through the queen catalog and we stole the format for that lock stock and two smoking barrels from Corey morissette and the uh and the podcast will rock with mark meyer and then the last one I do is the Ultimate Catalog Clash with Corey Morissette. And that's going through one artist catalog per season, going through uh, one side of an album per episode. And this season we're doing 90s Metallica, which I knew nothing about coming in and really wasn't a fan. But i got to tell you, Scott, I think I'm on the turn. I think Papa Het, as I believe he's known, mm -hmm. I think he's, I, I think I he's believe pulling so, me yeah. around to that side of the, of the live. I've come down to the dark side. I don't mind it. One thing that I really appreciate, because your first season was on Phil Collins' era Genesis, and Corey is not, as as we found out on this show doing the Thunder episode, uh, Corey <laughs> is not a prog guy, and you are not a Metallica guy. But what I really like is that you guys aren't like, oh, I'm not going to listen to that crap or whatever. Like, you're really open-minded, giving things an honest chance. And I really appreciate that, because I think people pigeonhole music and, and entertainment a lot, and they won't open themselves up to what they might possibly like because of what title it is. And, and, you know, I think they're missing out on stuff. Definitely. I can speak from experience on that. Like I said, the Metallica this season, I, I really thought that I didn't like Metallica and coming in, I thought, you know, it's only three albums and I know that Corey wants to do this. So it was more sort of like, you know, I, and there'll probably be one or two songs that I like, 
but of course, as you know, like anytime you start digging into music with any sort of critical ear, and you can appreciate a little bit of you know the technical side of what's going on, mm-hmm. of course you're going to think, yeah, well, James Hetfield is clearly a very good songwriter. Of course he is. Yeah. You don't sell as many records as he has if you're not a good songwriter. Mm-hmm. And it's not just kind of the commercial side. He just he structures things well and he writes good lyrics. And he's he's a better singer than I thought. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that 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 sort of um, experience of getting into podcasting and doing music critique or review definitely gives you those tools so i think it'll be a little bit more open so i can listen to lots of different stuff now that i probably wouldn't have been able to i don't know like five ten years ago sure well let me ask you because we, we've talked on this show and, and on the aerosmith show a lot about the difference between listening the way we do to record a podcast versus listening for pleasure there's a whole different critical listening side are you able to just listen to the album for what it is and for for pleasure or are you when you do the show are you like i have to do to listen to this for the podcast so i need to pay attention and do the critical review do you listen back to it afterwards and just try and enjoy it uh yes so that's the short answer and i'll qualify what i mean by yes so metallica is <laughs> a good example so i listened to the three albums a couple of times each before we started the the show because I just wanted to get the the timbre of it and figure out, well, what is this? What what does it sound like? What's the flow of it? Where is it going? Um, and so that really was sort of a listening exercise of just a, a passive listening, I call it, right? So you're just listening to it just to get a general sense of it. Then the next time I listened through, I was actually listen, trying to listen to the songs to see if I liked them or not. Mm-hmm. And then you get into, okay, well, now I'm going to sit down and actually listen to this song and pick off, you know, this time this time point, I like the, what the bass is doing here. I don't like what the vocal's doing. Then, But then going back afterwards now, now I've got a Metallica playlist, so I like listening to Metallica recreationally now. So I think with anything, this type of stuff that we do, it does one of two things, and it's either really good or really bad, is because you notice all the really good things and all the flaws, it either makes you really like the song a lot more or make you appreciate an artist or a band or an album more, or it can turn you off it completely. Right. So yeah. I've, had that, I've had that in equal measure on, even with Tom Petty, there's been songs that I can't listen to now because I'm like, you know, Mary's new car from um, Southern Accents is it's a train wreck. So this mm-hmm. is a bad song. It's it's just quantifiably a bad song. You know, um, so there's that side of it. But it's I'd I'd rather have the the enjoyment and the enrichment of being able to appreciate the music more with that sort of you know potential small downside. Well, that you know, sense? It's, oh, absolutely. And it's interesting that you say that because one thing that I have experienced from podcasts with albums that. I've just always taken as they are. I've never really thought about them. Some of my favorite albums, like even even some of the older Deep Purple albums, when the Deep Purple podcast first started out, things that they were pointing out, I, I just never thought about before because I never listened to those albums with a critical ear. They were albums I've listened to for 30, 40 years of just pure enjoyment. Yeah. And now I'm kind of put in a position of, I never thought about that before because I never had to think about it before. So I like that as a musician and from a technical side where I can learn about the artist a little more than from a casual listen. I don't think anything's been ruined for me yet, except maybe a little bit of Aerosmith. <laughs> well, I mean, again, that's a catalog that is not flawless, right? I mean, that's, that's the beauty of getting into it. It's the same with Van Halen. It's the same with Queen on my other podcast. These are artists who had definite highs and lows. And I think it's, it's fun to, and it's, you should be honest about that too, right? Even if it's your favorite yeah. band, which mm-hmm. Queen are and Tom Petty is and the Beatles are, I know that Revolution Number no. 9 is a terrible song. I know that Mary's New Car isn't a great song. I know that The Miracle is not a great album. So that's okay to, it's okay sure. to love a band and you can still love a band and yeah. find some of their output substandard, right? Yeah. And I think, I think there's that dis- disillusionment with, I don't want there to be a flaw in the meal. 
you know, yeah. I, I want to know that the steak is cooked right, the potatoes are soft and and whatever. And um, I think there's that uh, suspension of belief that these artists are superhuman and they can't possibly write anything that we don't like or whatever. Yeah. I, I always just take it by the song. Either I like the song or I don't. You know, I it would be ridiculous to think I'm going to like 100% of something anybody does. Yeah. But we we seem to hold the them to a standard or just live in blissful ignorance that they did. Well, that's that. That's what fandom is, right? I mean, it, it is overlooking the flaws. It is overlooking those things. But I think that does the artist a disservice if, you know, you get that, like, oh, every, everyone, every single song's a 10 out of 10. Mm -hmm. well, yeah. it's, the incred it's the incredible thing, right? If everyone's special, well, then no one's special. If every song is a 10, every song actually then is a five because yeah. it's bang in the middle. It's, it's an average, you know, everything you've got, your average is five. So I don't subscribe to that at all. I, I think that you've, you've got to be honest about these things, right? Yeah. And we're, you know, I'm 50 and I know you're, you know, probably, I don't know, a few years younger than me, so, but we're at a point in our lives where... Well, thank you, Sonny. <laughs> but, I, but I'm I don't, 51, I don't, but yeah. Okay, well, we're both <laughs> roughly the same age. But what I'm getting at is that we don't, I don't have time to tend to like things or right. to pretend that this isn't bad mm -hmm. i've probably got i don't know what 30 years probably left i don't know something yeah. around there with my genes and my lifestyle over the last 50 years <laughs> probably have a good 30 years left so i'm gonna tell the truth as much as i can so oh, yeah and, and you know if anybody ever questions whether i'm honest or just too polite to things go back and listen to the episode i did with Corey on the band thunder <laughs> and and you'll see honest. Actually, it, I I was polite. I think on that episode because some of the notes that I wrote were much harsher, but I just didn't feel the need to bash anything. Yeah, it was like here's how I feel, and then here's how I'm going to frame it. You know, because there's you could dislike something or you could be a dick about it, and I don't need to be a dick about anything except for yeah. people that are being dickish. Or if it fits the tone of the show you're on, because you know when we go to the Van Halen show, that is you can have a little bit of mock. Combat, mm -hmm. combat, right? So, and I, I like that sort of back and forth and that jousting because it's it less that you, you can exercise those muscles a little bit, right? But when sure. you're doing it, like you said, when you're doing a, a real review, it's like you said that it, it serves no one for you to come in and say, "Well, this is shit." Yeah. Okay. Well, what do you mean? You've said this before. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by shit? Why don't you like it? If you've got right. nothing to back up why you're saying something, well, then you shouldn't be commenting on it in the first place. So, not in a public forum, anyway, right? Right. I mean, it's one thing to say, you know what, the song just it just doesn't connect with me, and that's fine. Yeah. There's no reason to bash it, you know. Um, I just I just don't like to look at things that way. Uh, even last week on my episode uh, reviewing Debbie Gibson's Mind, Body, Soul, there were songs I didn't like, and and I was very honest about them. Like, you know, this one just it just doesn't do it for me. My response is skip. Well, and the the big example on my Queen podcast is Thirty Nine. Mm -hmm. Like I I downvoted that one, took a bunch of flack, rightly so, from the Queen fandom because it's a beloved song, and I know that structurally musically lyrically all those things it checks all the boxes it just doesn't land for me yeah. and i've got and i've got baggage with it and that's the other thing sometimes with music right it's a point in your life there's things that you associate with music that have nothing to do with the music itself right. that can color your view on what it is and i don't know that why apologize for that and why say something that you don't think <laughs> well and and i've never understood the 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 group mentality of that like just because a, a lot of people love a song why does everybody have to love that song you know like i can say i love beat it by michael jackson i think it's a fantastic song and uh but i don't like bad but if you yeah. if you say that then people are like how could you not like bad if you like beat it <laughs> they're different songs maybe i was in a bad mood the day that i heard bad and i just <laughs> it just always stayed you know because if you if you are in a bad mood and you see a movie if that movie doesn't really take you out of that bad mood you're never going to like that movie 
Yeah. Even if it's perfectly in your wheelhouse, something you would love on any other day. So that has something to do with it. There's all the things that are going on in your life, the memories that you associate it with. Um, the the weather could affect whether you like a song the first time you hear it or not. And once you've locked in that first impression, it's hard to ever get away from that. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, heaven forbid, I heard the song bad on a on a horrible day because everyone else likes it. So I have to like it, too, if I want to be cool. <laughs> Yeah, but the other thing is too is like you know there's there's not that many songs in the world, Scott. So if you don't like bad, you're down <laughs> to about you're down to about what nine? <laughs> yeah, so. I think there's like seven left, and and on one they're all on one CD. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a really weird thing. I and I learned a lot of that too with the Uriah Heat podcast. How possessive people yeah. really get about music, and I I just I guess to me I I just don't feel like putting that kind of stress on anything. It, I I don't think it serves it. I think it puts a completely irrational responsibility on a band or or a songwriter or a performer. And um, I don't think it serves anything. I mean, if you, if you like it, great, like it, hold on yeah. to it, give it a hug. But uh, there's no reason for you to be honest and or not be honest and say, you know, this song just doesn't do it for me. Do you find too, because I find quite often that friends will say, oh, you like such and such, you should listen to these guys, you will like these guys. And then it can be very similar music, it can, be, it can sound similar, it can be, but it's like, yeah, no, it's okay, yeah. but I just don't, there's nothing I'm connecting with here. And it, it, it quite often it's the the singer's voice for me. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you, so like, you know, with, are you, you're not a genre fan either, right? Because cause that's the other thing I get, I, I sometimes get frustrated with. I don't have a, I mean, generally, very generally speaking, I like rock and I prefer rock with a bit of roll in it. Generally, mm -hmm. very, very generally speaking. Yeah. You know, and I love Sabbath and I love Deep Purple because I grew up with and Rainbow and I grew up with all those bands. but. I'm not a, you know, because I know that this is where Corey and I differ. And I think probably you and Corey differ too, is Corey likes a lot of, and I'm going to put words in his mouth here. And if he is listening to this, I'm sorry, Corey, but I think this is a generalization that might be just about true. But a lot of sort of classic rock, Corey can listen to most of it. So a band mm. like Thunder or a band like Sticks or, you know, lots of different bands where I don't, I don't really have that thing where I can say, well, I like that type of music universally, which is where metal Twitter fascinates me. You know, and a lot of the guys on there, like Quinn and and George uh, from the Judas Priestcast, where they listen to like, you know, they'll rank their top fifty metal albums this year. Like, yeah, oh my God, <laughs> me to, for me to rank my top favorite fifty rock albums. Oh my God, I, from a year? Are you kidding me? So yeah. just have that sort of, I don't know, that energy and and patience for a, for a genre for that amount of time. I, I don't, I just don't have that because it's it's just whatever hits me and not. Everything does, you know? Yeah. No, you're right. I, I think I'm more of a comfort food kind of person. Um, if if you were to say, hey, if you like, like like I told you, if, if you like The Misfits, you know, Samhain might be a, a band that you'd want to check out because it goes into more of a songwriting and melodic structure. Um, but but for me, it's like, I'm, re I'm really weird. I don't know a lot of people that do things the way I do. I might love one or two songs by a band, like absolutely love them and go, these guys are amazing and never listen to a single album they've ever done. Yeah, uh, Zebra would be a perfect example of that. The song Who's Behind the Door is classically one of my all-time favorite songs. And yet it wasn't until I think two years ago that I actually heard the album. And and for no reason. I mean, it's, it's just like, okay, I'm interested in this. I like what I like. I, maybe I'm afraid that if I venture too far out of what I like, that I won't like the band. And then it might, uh, maybe there's like some conscious thing that you know, if, the, if the rest of the album sucks and maybe I won't like these songs anymore, or I don't know what it is about me, but I don't, I guess I'm just not 
somebody who wants to taste new things all the time. Yeah. I like the things I like. If I'm going to spend time listening to music or watching a movie, I want it to be, I want that time well spent. I'm not somebody who goes, eh, you know what? I've never had this before. Let me just pay 25 bucks for it and hope that it all works out. <laughs> I'm very, I'm very much more of a, uh, secu- maybe it's like a security blanket kind of thing, you know? Uh, but yeah, so I, I can't say I, I wouldn't give them a shot, but I wonder how honest I'm being if I were to give a band a shot in that situation. Like maybe I'm like, yeah, I'll check them out. And I'm like, eh, skip, 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 skip. Yeah. Eh. And, and not even really listen to a full song. Do you think the come of that some because I've thought about that lots too. Do you think some of that comes with age where, you know, when you're in your teens, late teens, mid to late teens, when you start discovering your bands and the stuff that you like and it's not your parents' stuff anymore. And it's maybe stuff that, you know, some people it's through their older siblings or it's through your friends at school, whatever it is. Everything's fresh and new because you just haven't heard that much. Yeah. If you're a music fan and you listen to lots of music, once you get to 50 years old, you've heard a lot of music. So it's mm-hmm. it's it's harder to you know without it sounds a bit arrogant but it's harder to impress me these days, like uh, certainly it's, it's very hard to be original and to be something that I haven't heard before. Yeah. So if it's something I have heard before, I'm probably going to measure that against what I consider the benchmark in that, right? So if it, if it's like heavy metal, like doomy, dark, gloomy heavy metal, I'm going to compare it to Sabbath. And if you don't measure up, that's going to be a bit. It's going to be a tough sell for me to listen to it. You know. But, but at the same time, like you have to have that standard for yourself, but it's also kind of an unfair comparison because to hold totally. anybody up to one of the gods of rock and roll <laughs> and say, you better be this good or I'm not going to live like it's a tough sell, right? Yeah. I think for me, it was really kind of around the late 80s when I just stopped paying attention to what was new. Yeah. I had found my bands. I had the Deep Purple and the Deep Purple family, you know, Rainbow, White Snake, all that. Uh, had Uriah Heep, Zeppelin, the Beatles. That was the core of everything. And, and I never even gave the Seattle sound a chance. Like I was just nice. done listening to new music by that point. Uh, I would hear a, a song here or there if I was working with a cover band and, you know, I would have to learn tunes or, or you know, if I was the audio engineer, I would hear what they would play. And I might pick out a song or two, but I've I've just never been one to like be like, I want to hear something new. Like, let me just go to something I like. Yeah, I, and I do that more often than I just why I don't listen to the radio. Well, I don't mm-hmm. listen to the radio because you might get nittlebacked and just nobody wants to deal with that, that possibility. <laughs> well, that's, that's risk or, management. Or, uh, you know, the, the rare times I turn on the radio is if I was taking a short trip to the store and I would get in the car and I would either hear Aerosmith or ACDC almost <laughs> every single time. Yeah. You know, it was crazy. And and I mean, I have six different stations programmed into my radio and no matter what one I was on, one of those two bands would be playing. It was just the craziest thing. I think, I think though, there is definitely something to the age question. Though I think as we, as we get older, we kind of just stop yearning for new things, period. You know, we don't really go after new meals, yeah. new restaurants, new this or that, unless you're just an adventurous person by nature. I think you just stick to what you like. Yeah, I'm a pretty, my sort of general personality is, is pretty low risk. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not a, I don't, I'm not a skydiver. I don't go sk- snowmobile, even though my friends say I'm a wuss because I don't want to go. It's like, yeah, but those things are dangerous and uh, I'm okay. I'll sit yeah. to my basement, I'll podcast. I'm happy doing that. That's you know, your so. thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and there's, there's people that will, I mean, you know, they could climb K2 and they'll be like, can we build a bigger mountain for me to climb next time? Yeah. And for me, I've never been that person. I, I've always been somebody that's like, I understand responsibilities that I have and I don't ever want to put that r- at risk. It isn't yeah. worth it. You know, well, let me ask you one other thing before we get into the misfits. Mm-hmm. 
Um, have you noticed a difference in the the kind of feedback that you get between the different shows that you have? Because you you really have different. You have the the Kevin fan base, but you've also got a Tom Petty fan base, a Queen fan base, a you know a Catalog Clash fan base. That's a really good question. Bloody hell! Um, I think that the my sort of interaction with the Petty fan base, I tend to be very. Not professional's not quite the right word, but I'm, I play things a lot straighter mm-hmm. um, because it's a it's a much older um, fan base. Generally, you know yeah. the, the demographic tends to be women or women in their sort of fifties to seventies who mm-hmm. listen to the show, or it's men in their forties to sixties, and it tends to be a lot of you know it's mainly Americans, almost ninety percent Americans, and quite a lot of Southern Americans. So the sensibilities there and the culture difference between me and them. There is one there, so I'm I'm a little I'm careful to manage that. You know what I mean? Okay. Like yeah, I just sort of nurture that differently with the with the uh, the Queen podcast. I am 100 percent myself. I mean, amplified up to a, a certain level, and I, and I you know you sort of lean into it a little bit, but mm-hmm. it's more. I swear a lot. I well, I I swear lots on the Queen podcast. I don't use profanity at all on the Petty one, um, mm-hmm. and then on the Ultimate Catalog Clash, it's the same thing. I, that's more me. That's just me being me with Corey, and yeah. so with the with the listeners. I think that that sort of pushes you into one set of listeners or another, right? Right. And also, I mean, I, th- I think that the the Queen podcast and the Ultimate Catalog Clash is is at least fifty fifty entertainment versus music critique, or that's what I what we mm-hmm. aim for. Whereas the right. Petty thing was, which you know, and it started more as an exercise for me. Really, it's like I want to do I want to do something. I want to do a podcast again because I'd done one with Randy for like eleven episodes about a year and a half before I did the Petty one. And I'd like to get back into this, but I want to do something that'll really enrich my understanding of a catalog. And I knew that I liked Petty broadly, but I thought, well, I'll go back and I'll dive into it. So that was more, it's more of an insular thing. And I'm doing, it's a journey of discovery for me that I found, as you tend to, right, that there's an audience out there for that who want to come along and be on that ride with you. So right. don't. So you just cultivate that, those two audiences, or I cultivate those two sets of audiences differently. Yeah, I would think so. Because I, I would think, I mean, you're talking two completely different styles of music between mm-hmm. Queen and Tom Petty and Ultimate Catalog Clash is going to be whatever band you're covering. So you're not really going to have a steady, you know, stream there. Yep. But uh, I would think between Queen and Petty, there would be a huge difference in the audience because it's a vastly different style of music. It's it's actually even more geography based, to be honest with you, like because mm-hmm. Petty just wasn't the same artist in in Europe, UK and Europe as he was in North America. And one of the main reasons for that is he just didn't tour outside North America that often, especially as he got older, he just liked, you know, sticking around the continent. And Queen really kind of died in America right around the works, 1984. So there isn't quite as big a... I mean, they're, they're a global act and they're a huge band and everyone listens to them, but, but most North Americans, unless they're Queen fans, they just know the greatest hits. You know, right. they wouldn't know, yeah. they wouldn't even be able to name an album or anything else, right? So mm-hmm. so there's, there's there's the divide on that side too that I find in the demographics when we look at, you know, when we look at our podcast stats, say, yeah, I'm not, we're getting, you know, I'm getting 90% of my listeners in North America for Petty and 15% of my listeners in North America for Queen. So that just tells you that there's, I mean, it could tell you that you're not, you're just not marketing yourself or, I hate that word, promoting sure. the show yeah. properly, but that, right. that says there's something there, right? So I would agree with that. And I I, I think nowadays... I have to wonder how much touring affects current bands that mm-hmm. would say do that because I think with with streaming and with you know concerts being broadcast on on the internet now, I don't know how much that actually affects things other than you know the band's income. Yeah, hard to say, right? I mean, I mean, the music yeah. industry has just changed so much since yeah. you know those bands started, like the mid seventies, early early seventies, mid seventies through to the sort of early eighties mm-hmm. was probably 
well, maybe late 60s, early 80s, is that's your golden period for the music industry, quote unquote. Right. And after that, it just it started to change, right? I mean, pop became king, and if it well, if it wasn't always was, if it wasn't always was, that's not very good English. <laughs> and, and, then, pop, and country became pop, and uh, yeah, everything started pop, crossing and then, over. And then and then you have bands doing deals with Walmart for exclusive versions of their album, which uh, is just the weirdest gosh. thing to me. Although I have to say, the uh, marbled vinyls that Metallica did with Walmart are really impressive. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're very cool. And you've got a uh, you've got a, a company there who is very rich and can afford to sink a lot of money into those exclusivity deals, so they're going to do it right. So yeah. because they know the fans are going to come and buy the stuff. And and I have to say, I was surprised at the pricing. Master of Puppets was twenty four dollars, I think, and that's what you would get it for in a record shop. Right. So there was there wasn't a boost for the uh, for the type of vinyl or the 180 gram or anything. They were actually very reasonably priced. And then you yeah. get to like And Justice for All, which was a double album. Um, you know, that was like 34, I think, which is not bad. I mean, it wasn't 44, which would be double, you know, double the price. So yeah, for sure. Really impressive deal. Um, what are your thoughts on 180 grams? Because you're a vinyl guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the 180 grams? <laughs> Look, I like it. It feels nicer. It, it's thicker. It's more substantial. I don't know how much it differently it plays, really. I think you know? I just trust it more as far as like yeah, not skipping yeah. and not not uh, scratching not as easily. But, and yeah. yeah, it just it just feels like it's a more solid piece of of, totally. of gear, you know. I just think that you know, unless you've got like a true audiophile setup where you've got your room set up perfectly and you've got baffles in the corner and you're you're centered and all that, you're not. You're just not going to hear that much difference but do i do i love it there's no need no need to buy colored vinyl scott but if there's colored vinyl available i'm gonna buy it ahead of black vinyl just because it's cooler right that's what especially if it's to the, buy vinyl the, the same price yeah absolutely yeah well so let me ask you as we get into the final misfits album for me to cover because i haven't i haven't gotten into the new band at all uh, to me the you know it's one thing for a band to change a singer but but really glenn was the face of the band and it's it's really kind of strange that they went on without him although they've kind of covered their differences and everyone's happy now which is great um what that, the misfits are a fairly new band for you yeah, so I was like I was telling you offline that there's a podcast that I listen to that's um, hosted by a guy who used to be on uh, in the lap of the pods, which is now wrapped up a Queen podcast, which was the impetus for me starting one or one of them. Um, so they do a show called Missing Music Podcast, and the format is that David and Lucy are two friends who have different tastes in music, and each week they bring or each to each episode they'll bring an album to the other that they haven't heard before, and they sit down and they go through and they talk about it. And one of the albums was The Misfits Walk Among Us, mm -hmm. which was their I don't know, label debut. I guess, I guess you know, we, we talked about this a little bit that yeah. they're a very they're a very unusual band in that they don't seem to have had any sort of clear business plan or trajectory or well, this is what we want to do. It was just, well, we've got nine songs, let's put them on this record and put them out. Yeah. So I kind of listened to that to that um episode and found that this is a band, a style of music that I just don't listen to and I have no frame of reference for, which was really refreshing because you don't come across those very often, as we were talking about. Mm -hmm. So I listened to it and I thought, yeah, there's a lot about this that I really, really like. And there's some stuff that I, you know, I find a bit repetitive or, or I don't like. But there's lots there that I did like. So I dug in a little bit and sort of learned a little bit about Glenn Danzig and what a weirdo that man is. Um, and got interested in sort of just digging around and it's like, okay, well, maybe I don't dislike punk as, thought, as much as maybe I thought I did. You know, maybe well, I've, and, had this, and... I've had this albatross hanging around my neck about yeah. punk and it's like, okay, well, this is interesting. 
And punk is is kind of a weird thing because it's not like rock and roll where rock and roll has similarities between one band. Like punk is really a a general style. Yeah. You know, you you look at the like the Clash is really the only other punk band that I know and they're nothing like the Misfits. I mean, so even to put them in the same category seems kind of weird because they're really nothing alike. It's so do you find that with that it's almost like grunge. I never understood what grunge was cuz you know, the the big ones, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, um, Nirvana, you did not sound anything alike. Yeah. At all. You know? Yeah. It's to me when I hear the word grunge, and, and I did a um a couple of panel episodes on that with John Matolo from the Deep Purple podcast. And okay. um the thing that I always think about grunge is singers who don't want to be there. Like, like the whole <laughs> thing is I have to say these lines because I'm making money. <laughs> you know, like they they just they just sound like they they hate being in the music business. <laughs> Uh, it's a weird thing to me, but we we did a, a really fun thing where the, the there were two people on the panel that are that came from grunge. One of them actually was living in Seattle when all of that happened. A guitar player friend of mine, Julie Gort, and then uh, and then John's friend Derek, and and then John and I were not akin to that kind of music at all. So uh, they challenged us. They each picked five songs for us to listen to, and then we did. Uh, we came back, and after John and I had listened to and did kind of a, okay now what do you think of it and i i was a little more open to it after the fact but it's still that whole that style of music just does not connect with me at all right. you know little bits here and there there's certain songs i like how do you not like smells like teen spirit you know it's it's a fun song but yeah. for me to say i'm a fan of nirvana i, I really couldn't do that but it's just it's what i mean i listened to it it's just if you hadn't told me it was, it was just rock music Soundgarden is just rock music. They're borrowing from Deep Purple and Black mm -hmm. Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and all those. Of course they are. And a yeah, little but, bit of a little bit of the punk stuff. You know, it's, but, but is that any different than rock and roll who is borrowing from blues and you, you know, all that stuff is blues based anyway? Scotch, you're giving the secrets away. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> all you have to do is listen to the Beatles, I want to hold your hand, and you don't need to ever listen to any other song. <laughs> or we you can that... listen to one of the shortest songs in history with one of the longest riffs in history, which is Andrew Bird Can Sing. Oh, man. Hey, you're talking to you preach the converted here. You know, I'm a big Beatles fan and you know that I, I, I love that song. So, but I love, um, I always go back to when you, when we talk about genres and those types of things, I always go back to Lemmy's quote because Lemmy from Motorhead, you know, spoke the truth and he knew what he was talking about. And someone had asked him once, So, oh, is Motorhead, what, what would you consider them? Is it speed metal? Is it heavy metal? Is it thrash? I don't know. We're just fucking ripping off Chuck Berry like everybody else. You know that's <laughs> and that's the truth of it. So I remember. I don't know if you've ever heard the uh, the old uh, radio call in show Rockline, where they would have a different band on every week, and you could call in and talk to Deep Purple or Black Sabbath or you oh, know okay. uh, J Jimmy Page or whoever was on. And somebody asked Deep Purple how they classify themselves. Do they say hard rock or heavy metal or country and western? <laughs> and uh, and and they said, well, you know, we've always been hard rock. That's that's what we prefer. And yeah. and I but I I understand the marketing side of it, yeah. But just as much as I hate the fact that you need an album cover to represent music, I hate the fact that we need genres to help people find music. Like I think, as we were saying, people pigeonhole themselves. Like there's some rap that I like. I did I, I did a whole al uh, episode with Nate Beaudry from Deep Purple Podcast on uh, Buster Rhymes Event Level Extinction album, okay, or Extinction Level Event album. I always get that wrong. And um, I mean, I like some rap. I like some country. I was in a country band. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I just, I just hate the whole labeling. I hate anything representing music other than just listen to the song. If you like it, listen again. If you don't, don't. Well, I think a good rule of thumb too is if someone says this, whatever genre it is, 
just don't listen to the stuff that's in the charts. Go find yeah. something that's, you know, that's not in the charts because usually the most sort of, you know, homogenized and sort of trimmed off and nicely presented stuff, that's what makes the charts. The interesting right. stuff is somewhere else. Because, yeah, I mean, I got, the last time I got exposed to new music was when I moved to Canada and country is king in a lot of the prairies. And so I, I got forced to listen to some stuff and I realized that, yeah, I really hate this new poppy country shit. It's terrible. But, mm -hmm. oh, wait a minute, Waylon Jennings kicks ass. Todd mm -hmm. Snyder kicks ass. You know, all these guys, Jason Isbell kicks, all these guys who are making real music yeah. with real musicians and paying attention to songwriting and being very good and well-rehearsed and professional. I like a lot of that stuff now, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, you you expect it's going to evolve, just like a band is going to evolve and go in different directions. And they started, as you're seeing with Metallica, when you go mm -hmm. back to the 80s Metallica, you'll really be able to appreciate the change in what you've, you're hearing now. Um, but... It, it's weird that country ended up pop like that just seems a very strange thing to me because country evolved into something and not that i would want that genre to still be merle haggard and you know tanya tucker and, the, and those people who just wrote these depressing songs about how awful <laughs> life is if that's what grunge was for uh it, but, but it just it, it's it's got to evolve things are going to change and morph and bend as people get experience and new people come in that have different influences merle haggard probably was not influenced by the beatles but shania twain probably was yeah well no, it's exactly it loops back comes full, full circle to what we were saying before right it's just just listen to what you like yeah and and if it's not for you just move on and let everyone else who loves it enjoy it. Like Taylor Swift is the, the primary case in point these days. Mm -hmm. I don't particularly care for her voice. I don't think she's got a particularly interesting voice. Can she sing? Hell yeah. You know, can she write a song? Of course she can. Again, look at the numbers. You just have to look at the numbers. And of mm -hmm. course, there's big marketing machines behind her and all that kind of stuff. But it's, it would be stupid and, and childish to say she's, she's a bad songwriter or she's a bad singer. I yeah. just don't happen to like her. But that's the way that country music and pop music and and what people are listening to is headed along with rap you know you know they all say rock and roll is dead it isn't but in a commercial sense look at the top 40 is there a single song in the top 40 that's got an electric crunchy guitar in it probably not you know very true i th I, I heard a, a song on the radio one night when i was out shopping and um i'm like what the hell is this it just it was it was just it just hit me so horribly. And so I, I wrote down some of the lyrics and when I got home I Googled it and it was Taylor Swift. And so I I I thought, <laughs> okay, that's one song. She's got hundreds of them. So let me yeah. listen to a couple of them. And I don't like her style of music. I think that's one thing that's a turn off to me is it, it I'm just not a fan of that style. 100 percent Um, that sort of electronic. I mean, some some of her acoustic songs are nice. But just that sort of electronic sound that they have and, and the way that, that people are singing nowadays, I just don't enjoy it. It doesn't mean she's a bad songwriter. It just means that it doesn't connect with me. Yeah. You, you know, know what? I, I, I suspect, Scott, and I'm just, this, this is just a hairball idea. I don't, not convinced that we're the demographic that they're going for. <laughs> so, <laughs> Kevin, come on. We, of course, we are. Uh, but the Misfits, I think they they never really had a producer. They didn't work out of a studio. They didn't have anybody watching over them and saying, okay, guys, let's go in a direction. Let's do this or that. Let's kind of get together how we're going to release material and come up with a strategy. They never had that. They were just like, let's do this. Okay. Because they did everything themselves. So Plan 9 Records is their record company. Yeah. And um, it, it's interesting because I think, and I think they benefited from not having that. I like the fact that they're just raw and they did what they wanted to do. They really lose me live. I don't know if you've heard any of their live stuff yet, but think about how fast their songs are 
and now put that on a stage yeah. where people are moshing in front of you and probably hitting your leg as, as you're trying to sing. And um, that I, it's just too fast. You know, it well, gets to the point where it's just pointless to even play. I was looking at Settlers.fm because we're going through, you know, like you said, I mean, this album that we're going to be covering tonight is 35 minutes long. There are mm -hmm. 20 songs on this album. Yeah. So I went to look at Settlers.fm and their average set list was between 12 and 15 songs. That's going to be the shortest gig in the world. Yeah, it's like eight minutes. <laughs> I mean, it's nothing. <laughs> you go to the bathroom, you're going to miss most of it. Well, it, when, when their average song is two minutes, yeah. you know, to maybe two and a quarter, and you only have, you know, less than 20 songs on your set list, you, you don't have time to order an appetizer. The show's over. No. So I, I kind of wonder about that then, because they must have been playing like, you know, CBGBs and all those kind of little underground places yeah. in New York, I'm assuming, which are small venues. And mm -hmm. I'm sure that they were sort of cabaret type things in that punk environment where Misfits would come on and do 20 and then, you know, The Clash might come on or The Ramones or whomever it might be. You might mm -hmm. have two or three or four of those acts in a night to pad it out to, I don't know, an hour 20 or something. So I think that... That in itself changes the presentation style. It changes the way you're going to write your songs. It changes the way you're going to, you know, plot your course of your band. And I think, like you said, being that they weren't signed and they did all this themselves and it's all very garage, there's so much freedom in that. And I think that definitely shows in the music. The creative yeah. decisions they take, the instrumentation they take, and the things they choose to write about, no label's going to let you do that. You know? Well, and, and if you think about it, if, you, if you've ever seen posters for any of the festivals that they did where they would have a lot of these kind of punk bands on, you've got 72 bands playing on two stages in two days. <laughs> and that's why, because the songs are so short. Yeah. You, I mean, your, your changeover is longer than the band is on stage. It's, it's just <laughs> nuts. Uh, yeah, you're right, though. They, the places that I know of that they played in Detroit were very small very small venues. I mean, if, yeah. if you, if you could get 500 people in there, I'd, I'd be surprised. Um, but, but what was their fan base? I mean, they didn't have a huge marketing campaign behind them. They didn't, you yeah. know, they, they were kind of an underground thing. And that's, there's a beauty in that too, right? I mean, it's the same thing with Nirvana and all those bands from Seattle. They, they came through, it's, it's a really sort of parallel process for those guys coming through too, right? It's, but if you've got 500, you know, true blue hardcore fans who support what you do you can make a living as a musician doing that yeah and know, they, they had their, their their fiend club so they did have some marketing where they would you know you would get a pin or you yeah. know sticker because stickers were really big back in those days and uh they they did a good job making their fans feel appreciated and, and they sent out everything so when they yeah. got the t-shirts like it was them packing the t-shirts and not not a company not a not a co-packer or anything it was actually them sitting in glenn's basement doing that and I think yeah. there's something really cool about that to me. It's, it's why I've, I only really listen to indie podcasts nowadays. I don't listen. There's like two of the big sort of more commercial ones I listen to, comedy ones, but because that connection with the people who making the, the, the dreaded C word content, that's yeah. important to me now. Like I like that engagement that you can have at it on a personal level or on that kind of level. And it's the same with a band like that, where you can probably talk to the drummer after the gig, like, you know, Good luck talking to Ian Pace after a Deep Purple gig. Drawing yeah. from the Misfits will probably sit down and have a beer with you if you offer to buy him a beer. You know, so yeah. it just well, changes probably, that interaction. He can't move his legs, so <laughs> like after the way that he hits that yeah. bass drum, he's not getting up for a while. Which drummer too? I guess because they had a few. I guess yeah, a few. Yeah, a few on this album. Yeah. God, it's uh, for a band that wasn't together for very long. They had yeah. a lot of members in in that time. It's pretty interesting. Uh, so this collection was actually uh, did not come out until 1995. 
And uh, as you could suspect from most of their albums, they're not really, they didn't sit down and say, we're going to write an album. They just, they had some singles that were released on 45 or, or EPs. And then they just, it just got sort of constructed together, like Frankenstein together yeah. as, as a lot of their projects seem to. Um, but I think it's, it's a good collection of songs. I, I think it has a nice, uh, a, a nice broad variety for what they would to, to represent them. Uh, it's funny, you know, Corey and I were doing the the Aerosmith podcast, trying to come up with like the ultimate, if if you're like, hey, I want to get into Aerosmith, what songs would you suggest I listen to? And we would hand them this list that we came up with. One side was hits, one side was unreleased, or, or you know, like album tracks or deeper cuts, anything that wasn't released. And I kind of feel like this would be a great representation of the Misfits, but I also feel like you could select any 20 songs from the Misfits and you would be <laughs> fine. Well, because they'd, they, I mean, okay, they've got a certain, that punk shtick that they do sometimes, and then they've got the horror thing that comes in, mm -hmm. but no two songs really sound alike. Yeah. They're very schizophrenic in, in what they do. And I was going to ask you, Scott, I don't know if you, if you know this or not. It says that all songs written by Glenn Danzig, apart from Ratfink on this record. So he was a musician. He played keyboards. I think he played a little bit of guitar. I don't think guitar is his primary instrument, but I think piano was his primary instrument. So uh, did he just compose lyrics and music, bring it to the band, and then the, the bass player and the drummer would say, well, I'll play this part, or and the guitarist. Like, is that kind of the, the way that that worked? Or? That's my understanding of it. I think he he played bass also, because I think he re-recorded okay. bass on... Because I was working off the box set. I had the, the coffin-style box set, you know, the four CDs and everything. And um, he re-recorded bass for some of those songs okay. that were on that particular version, uh, which is kind of interesting. So I, I know he at least played bass. If he played bass, he could probably pick around on a guitar at least enough to sh to write and, and give ideas or yeah. say, here's how I want the song to go. I think it's like anything else. So I think the band probably had some level of input. Hey, what if I play it this way? Or, hey, what if we did this instead? And don't always get the credit for that. To me, right. and I said this a lot on the Uriah Heat podcast, I, I think even just if you're not a writer of the song, your performance of the song makes you a writer. Like if, I, if I'm the drummer, the way that I play it, the way that I, I play the beat, the way that I do my accents or drum fills or where I decide to hit a cymbal or if I'm yeah. on a hi-hat or a ride, that's writing. It all is. So every song really becomes a collective yeah. of anyone who plays on it. The difference in in the statistics is how it gets paid. Yeah. So I would get paid for my performance, but I wouldn't get a writer's credit because it wasn't listed that I was a writer. So that's where Glenn's taking the share on that. And I'm, I'm sure that probably was part of the rift between some of the members. Yeah. Um, because they were contributing without getting compensated for the contribution. Um. But that also deals with, okay, well, now what can I do as a solo artist? Am I allowed to play this song? I wasn't a writer on it. I was only a performer. So now you got to go to Glenn and say, hey, the song that I performed on, do you mind if I perform it again? And Glenn's <laughs> like, well, yeah, what do I get out of it? You know, I yeah. mean, those are the things that really get ugly when it comes to bands. It's it's fascinating to me. It's like, you know, people get married because they love each other and then they have a kid and they're like, you know, we'll never put the kid in the middle. And then as soon as they get oh. divorced, it's a power play. And, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's just amazing how things change. And that's why securing your credits is so important. Well, it's, it's that thing that, you know, you, you either, I'm the songwriter, I come up with the melody, the lyrics, 
and the basic strong structure and everything. So I'm the songwriter. Mm-hmm. Or we can say, look, let's split it four ways. Yeah. Like, you know, Queen did later on and Van Halen did in the beginning and that, so that, but that can go wrong as well because, okay, look, I'm writing all these in songs. You're bringing in a, a drum beat or, and I'm, I told you I had to play most of the bass there. Why right. are you getting 25% of the share in Amal? You know what I mean? So I, you can see why tension can go either way and it takes a certain type of personality to be able to be rational about it. Now, rock and roll, punk, heavy metal doesn't always attract the most rational people or the people with their egos in check let's say that maybe yeah right so yeah no you're you're absolutely right and i think that's kind of the thing is is if you establish it as whatever the band releases is a product of the band and it doesn't matter who comes up with what i think that's a good way to start but what's going to happen is exactly what you said well i'm doing all the writing yeah or i'm writing 60 percent of the songs and that's part of what happened with uriah heap too because Ken Henley, Ken Hensley was really close with their manager. And so the manager was taking his songs and not the stuff that other people were bringing in. And then Ken said, but if the songs that I'm writing are better than the other ones, then why shouldn't mine? Like it just, yeah, it's such a horrible thing. And that to me is probably what ruins bands more than anything other than just being around each other too much. I think it's why a dictatorship works in a band. You, You do need someone to be the band leader, I think. Like yeah. the band is a, I mean, it depends on the dynamics, obviously, but a, a band operating by democracy, that's going to get messy in a hurry, right? Yeah. You know, you look at Richie Blackmore, Richie Blackmore is the leader of Deep Purple and that, that's just the way it is. I mean, you can either get on board or you can leave. Those mm-hmm. are your two options and, you know. Yeah. Or or he'll leave and start his own band where he doesn't or, have well, to, like now he's like, <laughs> now I am in charge of everything. <laughs> Maybe Richie Blackmore is a bad example because Richie Blackmore's nuts, but... <laughs> Genius, amazing, amazing writer. I, yeah. I love that. Uh, you know, I, I work with uh, my my band, Era Patches. I'm this the studio drummer, and our keyboardist is David Stone, who was on the Long Live Rock and Roll album. He wrote Gates of Babylon, and uh, no just, just an incredible, yeah, incredible songwriter and player. I love working with him, and uh, he uh, he is not fond <laughs> of that situation. <laughs> I'll just say that. Uh, yeah. Well, what, let's uh, let's get into the album. What do you say? Yeah, let's do it. So I don't know if these are going to be the same versions that you heard, because again, I'm working off the box set version. So there might be some slight variations. I thought about that the other day and just inadvertently forgot to tell you. So (laughs) surprise, but they're basically the same song. There might be a slight speed or sound variance um, because some of some songs they have recorded multiple times. Uh, (laughs) If you know the song, she, in fact, there's a wonderful version of a keyboard version of it with with Glenn on a, a keyboard. Uh, it's a really weird sound he picked, but um, okay. it's it's really interesting to hear. It was like one of the early demo, I think, that he wrote of it, what, like before he brought, like for him to bring it to the band and go, hey guys, here's the song I'm working on. Here's how it goes. Let's, oh, cool. let's yeah, that, work on this or whatever. So uh, They're always yeah. fun to listen to. Yeah, that's there's some good stuff there. Our first song is called, uh, and of course I've covered these songs on the show before. Our first song is called Mephisto Waltz. Let me uh, actually, hang on one second here. Oh yeah, your track listing might be quite different to mine. (laughs) Well, I went off the, um, oh, hang on. Okay, there we go. I went off of the... um, Wikipedia, or not the Wikipedia, and no, the Wikipedia entry for the the song order. So they might be different. Okay, I'm because on Wikipedia I see we are the one. Maybe I don't know if you want to edit this, but but I'm, I've got what we are the one three eight is track one on Wikipedia for me. Are we looking oh. at different? Are we looking at different wiki pages? Maybe. 
Or I might have been looking at a different. I might. I think I might be. I think I looked at the Discogs one. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No worries. Because we'll, we'll get this. We've got the same twenty songs. So. Yeah. We'll we'll have fun just the same. Yeah. And uh, all right. So we'll do Mephisto Waltz first, if that's all right. Absolutely. Excellent. And here's a little taste of that. The nice thing about the Misfits is after you've listened to the first 25 seconds of the song, you've pretty much listened to the song. <laughs> In yeah. most cases, there are a few ex- um, exceptions to the rule, but my kind of main note on this one is this is written for the crowd. Yeah. Whoa, well, that's, everyone's just going to go nuts. And that's, and that's, mm. that you play into the room. And of course, you should do that sometimes, that's especially with this kind of music where it is all about energy and getting people going. I mean, yeah, the lyrics. Okay, I mean, Waltz the Pagan Master, Waltz is Evil Shines, Waltz to the Devil's Depot, Waltz is going to be so great. And I do like, the throughout one thing, another thing I noticed with his lyric writing is, it doesn't always pay any attention to a rhyme scheme. doesn't yeah. really seem to care sometimes. I think that's a cool thing, because it's having that confidence, well, this is what I want to say, so I'm mm-hmm. not going to change it just to make it rhyme. I, kind of I actually that. find that harder than rhyming, because rhyming has become such a natural <laughs> thing to do as a songwriter, yeah. that it's it's harder to get yourself to not do it. Yeah, I will say though he does sound a little rough on this song. I don't, I don't know if you know what was going. Maybe that was the first thing they recorded that day, and he hadn't really talked much because he doesn't seem like very conversational kind of guy. But he sounds deeper than his normal voice. He just sounds a little harsher, I think. Too, Um, this song has never been one of my favorites. But to say that, I, I like every Misfit song. There isn't a song I don't like, but there's some that I like less than others. I would put this in you know, maybe the bottom section of, of songs. You're right. This is absolutely a crowd song, but I'm also surprised that we don't hear more backing vocals on it because they usually do that group backing vocal too. Yeah. It's it's pretty rough, right? I mean, it's rough around the edges. Like you said, I mean, you can imagine that this is probably one take. Like mm-hmm. this, this did not take long to record. Everyone just plug in, let's go, right? There's going to yeah. be bleed over. I bet if you've got the isolated tracks, there's all kinds of bleed coming through on the different mics. And it's, that's not the point of this band. And it's not mm-hmm. the point of a song like this. So I, that sort of roughness to it, I, you know, it's got some charm to it. Yeah, it's in my bottom sort of bracket. On the, the songs that I listen to, it's in, the, mm-hmm. it's in sort of the bottom half for me too. I, I tend to wonder too how they actually recorded because it really seems like, yeah, they were just in the room together and maybe Glenn did the vocals after the fact. But yeah. uh, like, there's almost no kick drum in this band. And, and no, I feel like no. they just they just had two overhead mics and that was it. <laughs> Poor guy, eh? Because you think he's pounding away on that thing. You can kind of hear it, but not very well. <laughs> that's that's one thing I did appreciate when they got to uh, to Sound when they started recording as Sound the, those members you you get a better sense of production it's still it's still rough yeah but it takes this to a little bit not a polished level but a better level where you can actually hear a little bit more of what's going on it does not sound like they recorded in a studio but it, it it you get a better sense of what everyone's doing and for me as a drummer and i'm sure for you as a drummer you want a little bit something hitting your chest yeah definitely especially with punk you would think that would be a big focus you would want that something slamming up against your rib cage well you would live right you would de- i mean it would be oh yeah you, you would want a bit less of it live maybe because the drummer's going to be absolutely hammering on that kick mm-hmm. and there is like i mean that is a you know i mean whether it's a criticism or it's just an observation on the album as a whole the production is not 
up there and it's very inconsistent because it's cribbed from all these different sessions and all these different eras mm. and somewhere i know it's a bit contentious because i think is it five or six of the songs were recorded just with um danzig and oh i can't think of his name now the bass player who came in um so it's really it was it was it was essentially most misfits fans from what i've read consider that not the misfits because mm. it was after they'd broken up right so of course that's going to be inconsistent but you know, there's a song, I'm trying to think which one it was. I think it's maybe the last song, Blood Feast, mm -hmm. where the mix on this album isn't great. There's a great version of it out there on, on a different album. And you think, oh man, like, why wouldn't you have used used that mix? Like, that's that's very unusual because I, I don't know many bands who've got that many different versions of their songs. You know? <laughs> well, I, I think too there's there's the uh the marketing side of it. Whereas if you're if you're just pulling from the songs versions that you've already used, yeah, I guess it's so. less appealing. I mean you'll get your completest that'll buy it. But if you want to attract, you know, you got to put maybe a couple of rare tracks on there, a couple demo versions and things like that to to build a a little bit wider of a net. Yeah, this is not Aerosmith. You're not going to get away with releasing the same songs 58 times. Well, I mean, they've they've got, what, three times the compilation albums than actual studio albums. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. Uh, all right. Well, how about Brain Eaters? Let's do it. All right. This is their. This is the punk version of an Irish drinking song. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. <laughs> I fucking. I'm sorry. We, do we do we swear on this podcast? Am I okay? Oh, yeah. Put a drop. I sure. love this song, Scott. I love it. It's just. It's everything that I think punk should be. Not mm -hmm. self serious. Just fun, glib, yeah. throw away. And at the same time, like if you really want to, you could read into. You know the the lyrics. It's about the sort of homogeneity of modern culture. Same TV shows, same movies, same music. We're all getting squeezed. Everything to the same template. We have no choice as mm -hmm. consumers. So, is it that? Maybe maybe it's that. And I know Glenn Danzig loved horror, so maybe it is just about zombies. Right. But there's just something that. How could you not like this song? It's yeah. so much fun to sing, and it's very very silly. And also, it's 59 seconds long. Like it just doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't overstay its welcome. It gets in and it gets out. I love it. It knocks on the door and runs away. I mean, you yeah. even have time to open it and it's gone. Uh, no, it is It is a fun song. And it's, this is kind of a rare one because they don't really do a lot of camaraderie feeling songs. You know, there's just not yeah. their style. But this one, I just picture like an old, you know, one of those old thick tables that the knights would sit around, which is like knotted wood and, but, but <laughs> zombies. And just, you know, they're all, yeah. you know, like they, they clash their beers together and one of their arms falls off kind of, you know, almost <laughs> like a, a, a Keystone Capers kind of uh, scene, you know. Uh, this is a party. Like they, I would never consider them a party song band, but this would be the one song I would say, yeah, probably would yeah. be the closest thing they have to it. One we are we are one is the we are the one three eight is that is the one of the tracks see that's that's mm -hmm. kind of roughly in the same sort of space. One thing I'd noted on this one too, just production wise, Scott, and I don't know if you can comment on this. The fuzz on that guitar, 
it's almost like they've taken all the dry signal out and you're just left with the the fuzz. It's almost like there's no, you can't really hear the attack on the strings. It's incredible. Like, yeah. It doesn't sound like anything I've ever heard before. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and I don't know if part of that is just the way it's blended in with the mix, because I think maybe the bass is taking the attack out of the guitar a little bit. Yeah. Um, but it's very, I don't know how you would do that unless you specifically <laughs> set up a signal path to make that happen. Yeah. You know, nowadays with with VSTs and everything, you could kill the attack on a guitar and just get the decay and it would be very easy to do. But, you know, this is actual instruments being recorded live and I don't know how they accomplished it. But yeah, you're right. It's a really weird just getting the effect. Super uh, cool. Maybe, though, like maybe yeah. that's what they did. Maybe they put the effect on a bus and they killed the original guitar signal and they just used the output of the effect. Because I'm because there's a spot, I can't remember which song it is on now. We'll get to it where you get the same thing with the snare at the end of a song where it's like they've just caught the verb. Like they've, mm -hmm. they've just, they're only catching, they've busted out and they've, they're just putting, the, I mean, there is a little bit of the attack on the snare, but there's really yeah. not much. It just sounds like that big, massive reverb on it. So I'm sure they were playing around with that kind of stuff. And again, that's the thing. If you've got no one looking over your shoulder telling you, you have to sound this way, you can piss around and you can try all these different things. Well, and it also makes you unique. You know, you're not using the typical studio sound or yep. here's the presets or here's how you mix this. You know, it's just, hey, g give me a little more guitar. It, you know, can you maybe put it over to the left. All right. Sure. Yeah. yeah, whatever you want. And then everyone goes away and just do what you wanted to in the beginning and then you release it. Yeah. Well, it's the thing, you know, if everyone talks about the Sex Pistols as being one of the progenitors of punk, but when you listen to that album, it's very, very well produced. Mm. Mark McLean did a great job producing that. It, it doesn't sound like this. It doesn't sound like four guys in a bathroom bathroom stall or something, just like all crammed in and just playing. Well, I think the fact that you have a producer is is a huge step <laughs> right there, you know, because no one was telling Glenn what to do. Yeah, I mean, he might he might have had people that were like, hey, you know, if you plan this a little bit more, you'll get a better sound out of it, or you can get a little more clarity for your voice if you split the guitars or you know whatever. Yeah. But I, I don't really think anyone was producing or or acting in a role of anything other than just hey you might want to try that yeah there was no conductor the orchestra is just free forming and they're just going where the mood takes them <laughs> i'd like to see a, a conductor work with a band playing this kind of music that would just be so much fun to watch we will get the ai to do that one of these days yeah uh but yeah and i'm trying to think of what um well, there was a reference that you guys made on this week's episode of Catalog Clash. If I if I can think of it, I'll I'll uh, circle back to it. But there was something. Yeah. Uh, the next song I have up on uh, my list is Attitude. This song um, was one that I did not hear until I got the box set. And so there were a few tracks that kind of came to me late. So okay. I always like mentally, there's always a separation between those songs and the the majority of the catalog, which I knew really well. I actually don't like the production on this one. I think it's a little bit too clean. Okay. Um, what do you think of the song though? The song itself? It's It's happy. It's it's weird. You don't want it to be it, happy. It's eh? like the, their style, but happy. You know, it's maybe a little bit higher register, 
Um, you know, it kind of starts out where they would normally peak and then it goes up. So that's a little bit weird for me. Um, right. I don't, it's just, it's just too happy. Interesting. Yeah. I do. And I it's... don't feel an aggression from Glenn either. I think that's okay. part of it because normally he would be singing with an anger, especially when he's talking about, you know, I'm going to fuck you up yeah. if you keep it up. Um, so it's, it's just kind of like, why don't we go have some tea and talk it out? <laughs> like it just i don't know it's 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 a really weird song for them i just i i love this song it might be my favorite one <laughs> I okay. just, and there is i mean there's actually a structure to it so mm -hmm. you've got verse chorus you've got a solo and you've got those big you know you've got the berry bends and the solo and i i just but the other thing is i know this song i knew this song before i heard this version of it because oh, okay. Gun, guns and roses covered this and i don't even really know that really? version yeah they oh, did it on wow. this you remember that cover album they did called the spaghetti incident yeah. It's on there and Duff McKagan sings lead, which is why it's good, because it's not Axel. Right. And he also, before the solo, instead of saying, you, you, you know, you, you're going to feel the floor, he says, you're going to feel the mother fucking guitar and then slash rips into the solo. And it's really cool. So I, I like the in and out of it. So I knew this song going in. So I, I think it was an easy piece of music for me to latch onto because I had a, a frame of reference for it. And it does. It has a bit more of a song structure to it. But again, it's only in a, a minute 30. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Out, you know. So, well, let me ask you this because this is something I I, I like to uh, try and find an answer for. But if you hear two versions of a song, and let's say you hear them six months apart or a year apart, do you tend to like the first one that you heard more, or does the second one sometimes come in and go, you know what, I like this better? I'd say that it depends somewhat on the band for sure because I've got my you know. The certain artists who, like, if someone's covering Queen, you're gonna really have to work to knock my socks off. Yeah. If you're covering a band that I, I'm less fond of, like, I love Lennon's version of Stand By Me. Benny King is obviously one of the masters. I prefer Lennon's version of that one. I definitely heard Benny King's version first. So mm. I think it depends. Depends how good the version, how good the song is, and how good the version is. I suppose. I think, but I, I would say, you know, like most people, I think generally. In 60, 75% of the cases, it's probably the first one you hear. Yeah, I think it, it's, this is how the song is defined. So anything that's not that is now a deviation. Yeah. Because it's solidified itself in our in our mental history. Uh, I have found that there are also just a handful, really, that I've heard newer versions. And maybe even the original version. Maybe I heard the cover first. And the cover yeah. usually makes me happier again because I heard it first. There's There's been a few um tomorrow never knows i think phil collins version i really liked yeah that he did on uh on face value uh i was surprised by that because i didn't think anybody would be able to take what the beatles did and, and do anything that i would find even remotely enjoyable agreed because of how amazing that song sounds but phil did a, a really respectful and, and fantastic version of it so now that's interesting now i'll have to go and check out the gnr version because i didn't know they did it yeah, there are, there are some songs too, though, where the cover is the definitive version, right? I mean, Hushback right. Deep Purple. Yeah. Uh, who the hell True. listens to, I don't know, I can't remember, don't even know. Joe, Joe South. Okay, so yeah, and yeah. has anyone even heard that version? You know, Well, Joe, Joe South wrote it. I think Billy Joe Royal was the first one to have a hit with it. Okay. But you're right. Purple put a whole different twist on it. The organ solo, just the choppy organ at the yeah. beginning. Um, yeah, that's such a great song. Oh, man. Such a great song. Uh, yeah, good, good point though. That's very interesting. Uh, the next one that I have on my list is uh, a little bit of a up tempo song called Demonomania. 
or as I refer to it as my ex. <laughs> I, I'm in danger of playing the entire 45 seconds of the song. <laughs> I, I love how much they actually squeeze into 45 seconds because you it, get like two verses and a chorus and two choruses and an intro. Crazy. Yeah, it's nuts. I But here's what I love about this style of playing. And I don't know if you've noticed this being a drummer uh, because you're not that familiar with their catalog yet, but there's this sh on the hi-hat when he goes to move to hit the crash on yeah. every single passage. I love that because it's like this really weird hi-hat build and then a little bit of a vacuum and then the crash and a build and the vacuum. It's such a weird transition. It's a weird song. It is. Top to bottom. And like you said, I mean, 44 seconds, it sort of leaves you, the first time you listen to it, so the first time I was there, you're just bewildered. Like, mm -hmm. I don't even know what the hell's going on. I don't know which way is up. Demono, is that two words? What? What, what is going on? What is this? You know, my father was a wolf, my mother was a whore. It's not a very nice way to talk about your mum, by the way. But it's just it's such, an, it's such an odd song. Like I, I'm still not exactly sure how much I what I think of this song. It's one of those where I still need more time with it. To be honest with you, it's it's almost like it's not enough to even have thoughts because you don't you don't get enough of the song. If if they yeah. would put in another like a bridge or a solo or something to give it a little more definition, but it's just in and out. It's almost like hey, we had a thought. We'll just throw that on the album and not like, hey, we wrote a song. Let's put it on the album. But that's, I think that goes back to what we were saying earlier. I get that sense from Glenn Danzig. That's exactly what it is, right? It's just, okay, we've got this. Well, let's record that. And even if it's like, you could imagine them writing a 15 second song and it just being a verse. Yeah. It's a hell with structure. Let's just, this is the idea. Let's play it. If we've got nothing else, well, don't mm -hmm. take anything else on. Let's just play that then. And I, I do like that sort of the spirit of that, of mm -hmm. not, trying okay well let's let's labor over this a bit now actually you know what we should probably but now nah, we've got this just play it let's just play turn yeah. the mics on let's play and it, there's like i said there's a charm to that now i what i don't like about this this style and this performance style is i can't tell a word he's saying for the yeah. most part right it's really difficult and because i am a wordy i am a i do like lyrics and i do you know and, and i like when i read the lyrics okay I can, well, it's kind of cool I just I just struggle with that sometimes, but I think that's that genre disconnect where I'm I'm just not used to that style. And I think mm. I just need a little bit more time to acclimatize to it because it is it's very percussive the way he's singing, right? It's almost right. like it's a, a tambourine or a, or a shake or something where mm -hmm. he's he's just punctuating. The lyrics don't really necessarily matter in this song very much. But I, I like the way he's a little off time with it too, because he's he's consistent and he's even, but he's off the beat. Yeah. You know, equally off the beat with every word. But I like that style. I think and remember when I first got into these guys, there was no internet. There yeah. were no lyric sheets in their albums, yeah. <laughs> probably because they couldn't afford them or didn't maybe didn't know how to fit all those words on a page. But yeah, it was I don't know what the hell he's saying. Like, I did not know what any of these songs were about, but most of them <laughs> until I got the box set, which came with the booklet of very tiny, tiny words. Uh, if you if you had a magnifying glass, you might be able to read them. 
So for the longest time, I had no idea what any of these songs were about. So for me, and, and I look at lyrics a lot now and don't really pay attention to them. Even on the Aerosmith show when Corey was like, oh, we, we, he just said this. I'm like, oh yeah, I guess he did. Because <laughs> I, I hear the voice more as an instrument than yeah. I do really thinking about the the concept of of the story of the song. Um, and that was re- that really started with Cirque du Soleil, getting into their music because it's all gibberish. Yeah. Except for, I think, two or three songs that they wrote that were actually in English and French. Uh, it's it's completely just made up syllables. So I listening to that and listening to a lot of world music where they're speaking, it, it, they, they could be words, they could not be words. I wouldn't know the difference. Yeah. And I really just kind of disconnected from lyrics. And I just hear it as I would a guitar or a drum set or a fiddle or, you know, anything else. Right. Uh, not a lot of fiddles in the Misfits, though. <laughs> but it's... But, you, you hit on some, sorry, you hit on something though, Scott. I think that it, that I and I'd sort of, I'd written it down not exactly in those words. Danzig's a really good vocalist. Yeah, no matter the style he's employing, you can tell that, like you said, he's he's deliberately behind the beat, or he's deliberately using certain inflections that sound awkward in places. Mm-hmm. There's, there's even a drum beat on one of the songs later on. That's like that's definitely deliberate. So the drummer's obviously also clearly technically proficient. Mm-hmm. So they they give the impression of being this sort of ragtag bunch of yobbles who were just shouting into the void but there is intentionality behind it so i think that that's why i've connected to this more than i've connected to some punk where i just think well i think you're kind of just pausing a bit there this is the real deal like this is and i, and I appreciate him as a vocalist even if i don't even that's not my preference on this song well and another difference between them too is a lot of punk is very much about politics and the state of the mm-hmm. world and things that are wrong and striking back and being an anarchist and um, I, I, I'm not degrading it for that. I'm just, that's what it is. At least the stuff that I'm aware of. And I think with the misfits, they're talking about horror movies and zombies and brain eating. It's just yeah. fun subject matter. If you're a horror fan. Yeah. You know, that definitely helps. But I, I thought too, you know, because this is a collection, I thought maybe this was just a demo, you know, something that they were working on, but it has a definitive beginning and a definitive end. It didn't just trail off you yeah. know, trying to figure out what they were, where they were going to go next. And they just stopped. It's literally a complete song. Yeah. Just a very short one. Yeah. <laughs> very, con- and, and, very concise. And back in the day, I, I don't know if they could do it now, but CDs could only hold 99 songs because the displays were only yeah. two digits. Yeah. You could not pull up song 100. <laughs> so you could fit a hundred songs easily on a CD if they're all, you know, less than a minute, but uh, you would never be able to play them. And it's so funny here when you look back at the kids, you know, these are the, these were the technological restraints that Scott and I were dealing with back in the old days. <laughs> Don't even get me started on eight tracks. <laughs> 